Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Helen Joyce. Helen Joyce became The Economist's Britain editor in June 2021. Previous jobs at the paper include executive editor for events, finance editor, international editor, and between 2010 and 2013, Brazil correspondent based in Sao Paulo. Before joining The Economist, Joyce edited Plus, an online magazine about maths published by the University of Cambridge and was founding editor for the Royal Statistical Society's magazine, Significance. She has a PhD in mathematics from University College London. I welcome Helen Joyce to Savage Minds. I would like to start off with how you got involved in what some call the gender critical movement, but maybe as a journalist, and I do this myself, I, I consider myself to be writing on this subject. Uh, advocacy has its moments, but I tried to step back, but I'm wondering your position on this. So exactly. I mean, you know, for me, it was another of many, many topics that I've stumbled on as a journalist or been asked to write about, in fact, that I knew nothing about. And that's the way journalism works. You know, someone commissions you and sometimes you go to them and you pitch and sometimes they come to you and say, uh, you know, I've seen this thing. I think it'd be a good thing for you to look at. And on this occasion, it was really that an editor said to me, um, you know, this, this thing is happening. The kids are coming home and saying such and such is non-binary now. Uh, you know, could you find someone to write about that? Because I was a commissioning editor at the time. And that didn't work out, actually. It turned out to be extremely hard, as you can imagine, to find somebody who wrote something that wasn't very odd. I mean, at the time, I had no idea of the sorts of things that people have been taught in universities, and I was just stunned by some of the things that were said. Um, so after some months, I decided that I really needed to look into this myself. And I became quite fascinated, really. Um, you know, I'm in my 50s, and I hadn't, didn't do a, an arts or a liberal, you know, liberal arts or a social sciences or anything like that. I did mathematics at university. So no one had ever tried to tell me that there weren't two sexes or the you know, sex was assigned at birth or anything like that. And I was absolutely blissfully ignorant of the fact that anybody thought such nonsense. So, uh, you know, for me, it was, a, an, a, it was as much an adventure as it was when I headed out to Brazil and had to, you know, learn from a not standing start because I'd known I was going for a good while beforehand, but had to learn a whole new language, political system, culture and so on. And you feel like you're an anthropologist from Mars sometimes. And that's journalism, you know, that people often say, well, you know, what, what does having a maths degree and editing a finance section do to prepare you to write about this, but they seem not to understand what journalism is. Uh, so I think they think that I'm an academic researcher or something. So yeah, I just discovered a, a subject I thought was bizarre, fascinating, and then actually increasingly worrying. And the things that worried me were the no debate. Uh, that's an extraordinary thing to be told as a journalist. You know, you turn up and you just want to ask questions. And that's how I did everything else that I've ever done, including very sensitive topics. And you know, to be pushed back and told that I shouldn't even be asking questions. Like people seemed to expect that I would just give space in an article or, you know, on The Economist's website or, you know, in a different publication, depending who I was writing for, just give space for them to say things without any challenge or without any discussion and including just flatly incorrect things like, you know, actual flash misstatements of the law or of biology or of the state of medical research. And if I would say, well, actually, I don't think that's right, they would say, you know, that I was a bigot. As many stories that I've covered from child trafficking in Haiti, and there were contentious moments there when I was covering this because I was, as they say in the UN, made persona non grata because I was working with the UN, but I uncovered 
some very nefarious movements within the agencies there. And uh, many of the UN people themselves called it out to me. But since I spoke about it... Yeah, but they understood what you were doing. They just didn't want you to do it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And they weren't trying to deny that child trafficking was somehow a Christmas gift for the world or something. Yes, exactly. Or that, you know, that it, that, that it was a bizarre thing for you, a journalist, to be asking questions. Exactly. And yet this issue has so many people, women, but men too, in recent months and a few years, maybe for some, has them, oh my gosh, the scales have fallen from their eyes. And they were thinking something completely different before those scales fell. Yeah, so that's been an exciting process. How is it that these people, and myself included, I include myself in this, were saying, but, oh, her feelings matter, and the whole pronoun uh, obeisance, the whole understanding something that is not technically or scientifically possible, but we gave a pass to it. How did we get there? I mean, I suppose human beings have a great capacity for that. Like, in, in one way, I wonder why we're surprised. Like, if you look back through the history of ideas, human beings, you know, we're not, we're not rational calculating machines. We weren't created by, uh, you know, some sort of spirit that, or anything indeed, that, you know, turned out people who could weigh evidence and, you know, do Bayesian calculations in their head or anything like that. I mean, we're evolved creatures, you know, just a hop, skip and a jump away from, uh, you know, being apes. I mean, we are apes. And all our cognitive faculties uh, evolved, and they evolved not for producing, you know, scientific papers. They evolved for uh, cohesion in the tribe, um, for other purposes that have to do with survival and reproduction. I mean, everything has to do with survival and reproduction. And if you look at things through that lens, you see that ideas can have purposes far beyond those ideas being just factually correct or being a good basis for, um, say, medical policy, because medical policy didn't exist until very recently. So, you know, so that's, that's just a very general point about why we believe what we believe, not really about this issue at all. Like, people believe all sorts of things for reasons to do with cognitive biases that, we, that are evolved. On this issue, I think you have to go a bit further to try to explain it, don't you? Because it is odd. I mean, really, you know, the sorts of things that I'm saying should apply to everything. They should apply to religion and the way we think about science and so on. So why this issue is the one that you're not allowed to speak about. And I do think that it's because it is the creation of a neo-religion. And so speaking is blasphemy. And it came at the same time that the internet made it easier for everybody to speak and therefore more essential if you are a a sort of you know neo priest in this new religion to silence people. I mean, what I'm seeing, I presume, is what people saw when they started to try to say that they just didn't believe in whatever the established religion was. You know, back in the you know, Renaissance or Reformation time. Uh, you know, I doubt very much that people expected to be able to debate with you openly about the question of whether you know Jesus Christ really was the Son of God or whatever, wherever you are in the world and whatever the the established religion was at your time. So it feels like that. It feels like I'm blaspheming. And I don't mean to be blaspheming. I just never believed any of this stuff. I didn't even know we were meant to believe this sort of stuff. And that's what's so interesting, because I don't think that most people believe this stuff. I think they just are blissfully ignorant of the fact that anyone does. You know, they think like I would have, or, you know, like most ordinary people would have, that there's just a few people who need special accommodations. And, you know, there isn't anything about sex assigned at birth or anything like that. They just think, oh, there's a few people who are very unhappy and need you know, to be treated as special cases. 
You write about this in your introduction. You write, when the only people who identified out of their sex were the tiny number of post-operative transsexuals, they had little impact on others. But the gender identity that is posited by today's ideology is entirely subjective, and the group of trans people is far larger. And this, I think, is a huge issue, coupled with what you said earlier, that medical ethics are relatively new in practice, in codes around various countries. So you had this ethos that emerged in your book. You go into the Danish girls chapter, into Lily Elbe. But we saw this early on in the 20th century experimentation on humans, what by the mid-century with the Jorgensen case and others becoming codified as a psychiatric issue that was resolvable. Still, no studies to prove anything, but let's just march forward on that, to this that I just read from your book that is absolutely the ethos, the spirit of why we are where we are, because everyone gave a pass and said, oh, it's a few people, it's a few. But what happens when a few people become a few hundred thousand people? Yeah, so I think that people just thought that wouldn't happen. I mean, I think for a long time, most people thought, like really, when I say most people, I mean really nearly anyone who thought about it, thought that this is such a rare thing to think, uh, to have this deep-rooted, unshiftable idea that you either really are or are meant to be a member of the opposite sex. You know, it was seen as, I think the, I think the, um, the incidence rates were estimated as one in 30,000 for male people and like even far less for female people. I use those words in the biological sense, meaning the same thing for humans as they mean for every other uh, sexually dimorphic species, so not an identity. Um, and if you think about it that way, you're thinking about people who are something like, say, witness protection. Like witness protection is allow allows people a, um, a legal and administrative status that's a total flat, flat fiction. Because there's so few of them and because there's a general purpose to doing it. Like the general purpose in the case of witness protection is to encourage people to give evidence against you know, really serious criminals and so on. But then they're given things like a false birth cert and a whole backstory that's not true and their records and the government's uh, databases are changed. And, you know, that's not something you would generally allow, but it's also something that's just for such a tiny number and there's such a reason to do it that, you know, it's just an exception. It doesn't leak out into everybody else. We can't all go and just change all our records because the few people in witness protection can. And I don't think anyone drew that analogy at the time by any means. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that people who are trans, you know, are in some sense criminals or something. I'm really just talking about thinking about something as an exception. And so they thought they were doing something similar. You're thinking through all dimensions of this, I can see. <laughs> I know, I know, Julian. It's just so annoying having people like really maliciously twisting your words and in such bad faith. But anyway. Uh, so, you know, if you imagine that there's just, you know, one in a hundred thousand people who just need a special accommodation, most people would literally never meet somebody like that in their life. So what's the harm? You know, that's the feeling. And then I think that's coupled with, for some reason, there's, there's a, a psychological plausibility to the idea that somebody can be the wrong sex in their mind rather than their body. So I think it's people, people and I know this is true for me. When people come across the idea first that somebody's really a woman inside or that someone has a you know girl brain and a boy body or something like that 
they don't stop and immediately think that's nonsense, your brain is part of your body, or I don't believe in souls, or that's Cartesian dualism on steroids or something. They think, oh, they kind of think that they kind of know what you mean. And you have to interrogate the idea before you realize that the only thing you could possibly mean is that somebody has some quite stereotypical ideas of the opposite sex and feels that they would be more at home in that sex. You know, in some very deep rooted sense, I'm not saying it's a superficial thing, but I mean, you know, just, just as a matter of logic, any, anything, anything at all that I or you feel, anything at all is just by definition something that a woman can feel. Anything that we can do is by definition something that a woman can do. So if a man thinks that he really was meant to be a woman or that he feels the way he feels is more like a woman, those are things that by definition a man can feel and do. So it doesn't identify him out of his sex, but somehow we feel that it does. And I think that has to be a backhanded compliment to our understanding that there are actually differences between the sex and those sexes, and those things are quite deep rooted. So we, so we somehow, without making the logical leap, we think, oh, this man is so atypical. And this is such a bizarre idea that, you know, nobody would be faking it. So it has to be actually the case that he would fit better into the pink box than into the blue box without thinking, do you know what? You know, let's not be so strict on these bloody boxes. You know, so, so, so I think it is a mixture of it just having been a very tiny number, a very, you know, seen as an exception, but also, and this is deeper and was kind of unquestioned, a sort of a feeling that this isn't such a weird thing for some rare number of people to want because actually the sexes are very different and then the one thing i'll say finally about the idea is that there's a, a real inherent sexism in it and that doesn't that isn't obvious at first because there's a natural obvious symmetry like you know males can identify as women females can identify as men there's not a a one-way path here but one thing i discovered and i hope it comes out in the book is that the reasons that males and females identify out of their sex are really extremely different and they do it in very different ways. It's got very different psychological significance to the sexes. Uh, so often a woman will identify out of her sex historically and even now, I would say, because of the restrictions that are placed on women. Um, and she may or may not say that to herself. I think now a lot of the girls who identify out of their sexes, who say that they're you know, sex, who say they're non-binary and so on, they're not really saying to themselves, you know, it's shit being a woman. I hate the porn. I hate the, you know, I hate the men ogling my breasts when I'm 13. I, you know, I hate the I hate the way I'm going to get old and be treated like I treat old women now. I mean, young women really don't think that to themselves, like the awful, sexist, misogynist, ageist things I have heard teenage girls say since starting to research this, like, you know, incredibly insulting things about the women they call TERFs. I mean, would you want to become one of those women if that's the way that you think? Wouldn't it be more fun to identify out, you know? So, so men, for men, it's often much, much more to do with actual sexual desire, like sexual feelings and sexual motivations. And you're not meant to say that, you know, that's, that's the thing that you get, that one of the things you get the most pushback on, that you're saying that trans people are perverts. And not at all. People have sexual urges and sexual desires and sexual motivations. And I just think this is one of them. Well, you go there in your book, and I was very impressed because a lot of people avoid it. I'll be honest, I have too. And people have asked me, why don't you cover AGP? And I say, it is so dicey that the minute you get there, you will get called everything under the sun. But let's go there for a moment. You're, you cover the work yeah. of Ray Blanchard and of Michael Bailey in your book. And yeah. in Bailey's 2003 book, The Man Who Would Be Queen. Now, as I just mentioned, many gender critics have avoided this subject entirely, where autogonophilia is 
verboten because some say, well, that's not nice, and others say, I'm not going there. Why has autogynephilia so divided people on both sides of the aisle, by the way, both within the trans community, because there's that war going on with them, where some are very happy. And I wrote, I interviewed Blanchard a few months ago. They retweeted the interview. They were very happy to hear it. And then the other side, it says, this is transphobic. And then yeah. from the gender critical side, those who say, well, it, it's generalizing about them or will be painted as bigots. I mean, I really sympathize with people not wanting to say things because they will be painted as bigots, because I knew as soon as I wrote this book that people would find slurs, you know, and I mean, I even could guess what some of them would be because, of course, I wrote about it in the book. I mean, there's a whole section about what happened to Ken Zucker, to Ray Blanchard, and most of all, Michael Bailey and also Anne Lawrence, who is a uh, self-described autogynophilic uh, transsexual. And, you know, the slurs are horrendous the attacks are horrendous I mean what Bailey endured is just unbelievable I really really urge people either to read about that in my book but also to read about in more detail and because uh, it was all written up in a paper that I cite um, by Alice Drager who's a medical historian journalist many other things very interesting woman in her book uh, um, Galileo's Middle Finger so it's, it's looking at scientists who are silenced or um, attacked because of what they say and it's, it's basically in the sort of sex gender field. So it's, it's an unusual book, but anyway, a significant chunk of it is given to her investigation of the lies that were told about Bailey. And she started from the position that there had to be some smoke because there was, you know, there had to be some fire because there was so much smoke. And she discovers that they were literally made up entirely, like 100% invented. And she had, to, she had to spend like really weeks and months studying emails, interviewing people, et cetera, et cetera. And it was just an attempt to ruin his life. Not Anna Straker, because I didn't interview her for the book. I did try, but she didn't get back to me. Uh, somebody else said to me that uh, they really thought that the aim was to get Michael Bailey to kill himself. It was that bad. You know, he had to get the police to record a message on his mobile, on his home phone, saying, you know, if this is, about, if this is threats, you can expect to be traced. Um, the things that were said about his children, and they complained about him to his... Uh, uh, professional body to try to get him sacked. They complained about him to his university. They created a website and put pictures they'd stolen of his children on it with you know, pornographic and disgusting captions. And they said that he was an alcoholic, that he'd broken up his own marriage by being unbearable, you know, on and on and on. And that literally 100% invented. And it was just because he had touched the third rail. But oddly enough, he went where Blanchard had gone and you wrote about Blanchard having this kind of survivor's guilt. How is it that Blanchard was saved from this? Because Blanchard was writing in, in medical journals. You know, he was writing for an audience of a few hundred people who knew the score. Like the same people as would read a paper talking about men's other fetishes. Uh, you know, it's the same techniques, the techniques that are used to show that some men are autogynophiles and for your audience, those who don't know, um, autogynophilia is, the sexual, even orientation might be a good way to think about it, and a very unusual sexual orientation, which is attraction to the vision of yourself as a woman. So it's from the Greek, auto and gynophile. Uh, so a small number of men, their sexual fantasies, life, um, all the meaning that they, they, they have in the, uh, themselves as a sexual person are organized around this idea of themselves reinvented as a woman. And this is much deeper than just wanting to cross dress or you know being a drag queen or something i mean they're, they're straight men i should say that in you know they're men who find women attractive generally but the woman they find most attractive is themselves as a woman 
So it's absolutely not like you know homosexual men dressing up in, as women, you know, for the reasons that men that gay men do drag. Um, and it's it's so much deeper than just dressing up. You know, you're not saying I want to present myself as a woman because that's fun or I get off on it or something like that. This woman is the woman you love, the woman that you brought into being. And when something is that deep and significant to you psychologically, all sorts of odd things can happen. And in this case, and Alice Drager really nails it in her book, she says that autogynophilia is the love that would really rather you did not mention its name because it disrupts the whole thing. So some, you know, if, if a man were to try to explain that there is this woman inside, and, and there are some autogynophiles who do this, but there are people who have you know, significant uh, intellectual rigor and uh, mental stability and bravery, because this is not an easy thing to do. They know they'll be mocked, but also because it's, it's looking at themselves in a way we don't tend to, any of us, like examining our deepest motivations you know, in the cold light of day. But so if you're, if you're a man who feels like this and you say to another person, you know, I, I feel very strongly that there's a woman in me and that woman is the woman I love. Other people won't understand it, they might mock you, but also worst of all, you've kind of ruined it for yourself. You know, you, you've, you've, it's as if you stood up during the performance and said, ah, this is all just made up. Like, you know, like you'd ruined the play. Everybody's engrossed in what's happening on the stage and everybody, you know, so, so that's, it's a really, really difficult sexual orientation. And you would need to be a person of uncommon bravery and um, integrity, really, to deal with it in, in, in a way that is understandable to other people. I don't think it can ever really be understandable to other people. So, so mostly people kind of just suppress that thought. And again, that's not unusual. All of us are constantly suppressing thoughts, in particular about our sex drives. People don't really like to examine what turns them on and why. You know, unless you're extremely vanilla and you know our culture is just fine about it. just lots of people have unusual sex drives lots of people have unusual sexual tastes and the unfortunate thing for autogynophiles is that this one you know it requires if you are somebody with a very strong uh, will and drive and you know you know if you're one of these men who has always got things done and you've maybe you know gone to the top in your industry you know maybe you were in the army or something like that it seems to require that you remake the world to fit you back in as a woman. And so that's why I had to go there, because you can not understand um, transsexual or transgenderism as a movement if you don't understand that there's this tiny core of really, really driven people for whom it matters more than anything else that the world is remade to fit them back in as women. And that requires that the rest of us have to go along with it. It's no good for an autogynophile if women say, you know, oh, that sounds quite tough. Um, you know, of course, you're not actually a woman, but, you know, we'll see what we can do to accommodate you. Of course, you can't come into women's sports or women's spaces and, you know, we're not having you wave your, your, your meat and two veg around in the changing rooms. But, you know, I really feel sorry for you. So, you know, perhaps you could join our book group, you know, a women's book group. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? That's no good. That's destroying everything. So you require the whole world to play along. And, and play along in a very convincing way. And, you know, and I think that that is linked to why the, uh, the silencing is so vicious because you are touching at the core of someone and at their sexuality. And so, you know, for decades, there's been this particular drive from this small number of people without society at large understanding that that's what their motivation is. So, I mean, I, I, I threw caution to the winds, frankly, Julian, on this issue. I tried to write it as carefully as I could. I tried to be as sympathetic as I could because I am sympathetic. This can't be easy. It's just, I'm not willing to have the whole world destroyed for a few people's rather difficult situation. I want to try to accommodate people. I want to try to understand them, 
But, you know, in the end, if we keep just shying away from this, and why do we shy away from this? Because it looks mean, because it seems implausible, because you're, you know, I think it was Maya Forstatter once said to me, you know, what they're doing is obscene. Now, she wasn't talking about autogynophiles there. She was talking about, you know, men coming into women's spaces naked and insisting that there's nothing to see here. Like, what they're doing is obscene, but when we say it, we sound like we're obscene. It's indicative of what Laura Penny tweeted the other week before exactly. she went silent, that we're the ones violating these men by looking at their penises. Yes, and you can only play along with that if you have no picture in front of you. So if you, can, if, if you call somebody a woman, you maybe don't have the vivid picture in front of you, you know, of somebody with a male body. And a, you know, a male body is not just genitals. It's the whole thing. Being male or female is something that's in every one of your cells. It's something that we, can, that we are evolved to recognize whether somebody is male or female. Babies can do it. It's something that every woman both instinctively knows that you will feel different about a, strange, a stranger who's male and a stranger who's female. You know, you don't have to teach women this, but actually women are also taught it, you know, by bad experiences or just by acculturation, you know, that it's your fault if you go out in a short skirt or, you know, it's your fault if you get drunk and you haven't got something to take you home, you know, and men don't, aren't taught to control themselves. But actually it's much deeper than that. It's absolutely bone deep, our understanding of what sex other people are. But suppose you're not looking at a picture, suppose you're not looking at the person and you read this thing about this trans woman coming into the changing room and that spa in Los Angeles that everyone's talking about at the moment. And the other women are bigots and they're complaining. And you know, if you're a bit, frankly, a bit lacking in imagination and possibly a bit stupid, you don't have the picture in your head of an actual man. This person is a man. It's the only word for this person that really addresses reality. Coming in, taking off all his clothes, doing something that in any other circumstance we would understand as a crime, namely flashing. And they're doing it in a place where women are unusually vulnerable because they're all naked and they can't get away quickly and there are children. I mean, it's a grotesque overstepping of women's boundaries. And the only way that you can pretend that it isn't is in this linguistic sense. You call this person a woman and then you know it's just a different woman, it's a woman with different genitals. Well, how are you to ignore the fact that this person is actually male and all of their body is male? And you can see that from all of them. You can hear it in their voice, you can see it in their face and so on. But the place, of course, you'll see it most is in their genitals. Well, you must tell women to look away. That's the only way that you can do it. The looking away is the essential, essential bit of the whole charade telling women to look away. Well, I had a recent verification on my browser, right? Click on the bicycles, click on the cars, click on the oh, yeah. lights. This time it was click on the men. And there were faces, really? men and women. Yep, I put it on Twitter last week. Oh, I didn't see that. I missed that one. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is transphobic. So, of course, <laughs> miraculously, I guessed the right ones. Isn't that a coincidence? Because there is no difference, right, according to the narrative. But I can tell. Anyone can tell. Of course you can tell. And it's, it's extremely hard to force yourself not to tell. One of the young detransitioners that I interviewed, not one of the ones that I profiled, uh, um, but somebody I talked to about other things, really interesting young woman. She told me she reckoned there were three or four years in her teens when she had convinced herself that she was not actually able to tell the difference between men and women and that she couldn't know what whether someone was a man or a woman or indeed what sex they were, but not she didn't really believe in the concept of sex, so just gender, that she couldn't uh, really work out what gender someone was until they told her. And I mean, this is at the cultish level of, um, you know, real reality denialism in your head because that's something I, I didn't, I mean, I had never researched, you know, cults or religions or beliefs or ideas and the history of ideas or any of these things until I did this book. I hadn't understood to what extent when 
you know, what, what look to outsiders like bizarre ideas arise and take hold, it requires that the policeman or the priest is put inside your head. You know, you can't rely on, like, like if all of us were walking around knowing perfectly well and saying in the fronts of our minds, you know, men can't be women, that's ridiculous, but unfortunately I'm not allowed to say anything about it now, we wouldn't be here. There have to be significant, like the majority of people who know this is even happening, have to be shying away from it in their heads. And that's why it's called thought reform. There's a book title, um, thought reform, what is it? Um, oh, I can't remember the full title, but it's thought reform in communist China. And it's where the expression comes from, um, thought terminating cliche. So thought termination cliche is something like trans women are women. And as soon as the idea arises in your head, like as soon as the uncomfortable you know, suppose you're reading some, you know, biology paper and it's about sex differences in fruit flies or something, you know, or, you know, primates and, you know, gorillas, you know, or if we were the man is, the male is huge and the female is small and they live in very different sort of, you know, groups. And a sneaky thought comes into your head, you know, oh, well, we're just evolved animals too, we're apes. And you have to shut that down because it could infect everything. And you know, you will then be cast out of the tribe. So you say to yourself, trans women are women. It's the start and end of every intellectual inquiry. I think that's the right quote from the book. Yes, and, and in fact, the newest trope within the sports sector is the Michael Phelps trope, right? I well, know. all sports people are freaks. Wait a sec. I step back to your introduction where you say, I love this part. Gender self-identification is a demand for validation by others. The label is a misnomer. It is actually about requiring others to identify you as a member of the sex you proclaim. Since evolution has equipped humans with the ability to recognize other people's sex almost instantaneously and with exquisite accuracy, very few trans people pass as their desired sex. And so to see them as that sex everyone else must discount what their senses are telling them. And this is, this is really hitting on what I feel inside when I got involved in this, because I had discussions with people for my first article back in 2012 is when I, I was understanding the larger picture. And it was at the Julie Burchill and Susan Moore debacle with Possibly the observer. Possibly Julie Bendel. Well, it was actually the Burchill piece in January okay. of 2013, because I was in St. Mary's giving birth. I just, I'll never forget this. <laughs> it was a very wow moment for me because I was like, someone asked me to write a repost to Susan Moore and Julie Burchill's pieces. And I said, I don't know who these women are. I, I've been living in the UK very little time at that point. I said, I don't feel equipped to answer to uh, what are these women represent for you because I don't know. I'll have to do research. So I spent the next six months doing the research. And when I saw no academics speaking out on this, except a few in blogs, but very timidly and mostly men, I wondered where are the feminists in this country backing these women? This is outrageous that The Observer pulled an article by Birchall that spiked later republished. This was it for me. This is what set me on that path. Yes, everyone has a story, don't they? <laughs> yeah, well, I tell you, after that, this bit that I just read of yours is what I felt. I felt, A, what does that mean? I feel like a woman. I've had three children. I don't know what that means. I don't believe in an internal sense of gender. When I say believe, I don't mean religious belief. We have had centuries of feminism from even the French Revolution with people like Flora Tristan, who immigrants from Peru coming to France to talk about feminism as it was then through class, 
I do not understand how in 2000 something, we are now supposed to re-identify with the cliches that I thought we shed historically. That's a problem for me. The other part is, why am I being asked to perceive someone as they wish to perceive themselves? So back in 2013, when I did my first piece on this subject, I interviewed a psychiatrist who worked with us to have a stock, and I told him about some of the narratives out there. He's since come on board on Twitter and he's actively tweeting on this. He was a bit surprised by what I was telling him on the ground. And he said, but we tell our patients that they can have all the changes they need, but they will never be perceived as they want. I can put your hand in hot water. I cannot make you feel it as cold. And I kept yeah. thinking that's what we're being asked. We're being asked to deny our own sensibilities, our language, and then the litmus test seems to be when some women come out and say, well, some women in this group have been victims of sexual assault. And I also balk at that because I'm thinking, wait, I don't want the litmus test to be, am I or am I not raped? I want the test to be, can I say no? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a complete sentence. We should just be able to say no. I, I also have a difficulty with that. I mean, I see why women do it. They want to get to the extreme case and say, so you're really going to say that even, uh, you know, even a rape victim, a woman who comes to the police and says, I have just been raped, that that person who says, I, you know, I can only bear the idea of a woman doing the examination, then sees a man dressed as a woman coming in to do the examination. Uh, are you really going to say in that edge case that yes, that woman is a bigot if she doesn't accept it? But I mean, that isn't the test, like you say. The test is just that the woman says no. I mean, I haven't been raped. I haven't been sexually assaulted, apart from the usual sort of flashing and groping type stuff that every teenage woman, teenage girl and uh, young woman in her 20s gets at some point. So, you know, I don't feel that I am traumatized in any way. I just don't want it. That's all. It's that simple. These are my boundaries. This is my body. I'm able to tell who's male and female. And I say female, thanks. So I shouldn't need to go there. You know, it's, it's the same with the prison argument. People are like, well, what, you know, there will be rapes. Well, what if there aren't any rapes? There will be, but what if there aren't? I still don't want to go to sleep in a cell with somebody in the same cell as me, who I'm meant to pretend as a woman, but I can see perfectly well isn't. Like, how can people not see how awful that would be? What an intrusion on you, what an invasion of your privacy, what gaslighting. I mean, it's an expression that's overused, but this is real gaslighting stuff. You know, that you'd never feel safe, that you'd never feel comfortable, that the things that you would only say in a group of women, the bit where you let your guard down and you you, know, you don't have the, the antennae going, you know, what's happening around me? Where is that person that you do have if there's a man? And you know, obviously, especially a man who's been uh, convicted of a crime and possibly a violent crime and possibly a sexual crime. Uh, and you're meant to pretend this isn't happening. You know, it's absolutely extraordinary to me that anyone can go along with this. And you have to be quite deep into um, having the policeman in your head stopping you from thinking any of these things because what you do is you hear what I've just said and you reinterpret it as me saying things I didn't say you reinterpret it as me saying I, you know, oh Helen Joyce thinks that all trans women are rapists like Helen Joyce literally did not say that so you know so that's what you do when the policeman's in your head you mishear and selectively hear and misrepresent what people say in order never to go to the place where you know if you go there in your head you're lost to your tribe. You know, if you if you allow yourself to think, gosh, I wonder what it would be like if I were a female prisoner and somebody brought a person that I could see perfectly well as male in and I'm meant to never, ever, ever say that. And I'm meant to not feel any different about that person to, to, to female people. That person might be sleeping with me. They might be, you know, 
I mean, you have very little privacy in jails. You may undress in front of this person. They may undress in front of you. You may shower together, et cetera, et cetera. How would I feel if you allow yourself to think that there's only one answer that you can come to? So you mustn't allow yourself to think it. You must just say trans women are women. You know, Helen Joyce is a bigot. Uh, she's saying that all trans people are rapists or something like that, you know, to, to shore up a really untenable belief. Oh, certainly. And, and your work on this subject went to the extent of covering media stories that have piqued so many people, the recent case in British Columbia. Yeah. I, have a, I have a question for you, editorially speaking, because I realized reading the book who you were referring to, and obviously you had to change his name, or you did change his name. And my wonder was this, this is Max, of course, in the book, were you required to, because I know the order in British Columbia was that the journalist there could not name this person. But I was wondering yeah. to what degree you made that change of name, even if you were likely, I, I don't imagine that you would have been held accountable had you said this person's name. Yes. So for your listeners, um, this is the case uh, of a man, a father, who opposed his female child, his daughter's uh, transition, which was basically arranged by the child's school. And he, he ended up in jail for um, contempt of court uh, at one point. And, you know, this, I've, I've been aware of this case for some years and been talking to uh, the lawyer who represents the father. So in Canada, it is a, uh, there's an order from, I think, from the um, family courts that you're not allowed to publish the child's name. But actually, I actually approve of giving children privacy. So, but I, I think, you know, if it had been an adult, I think I might still have tried to find a way to comply with the case because I'm not in the business of ruining individual people's lives or dunking on them or any of those things. I, 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 I had to make some really difficult judgments in the book. And one of them in this case was that I was going to comply with that order. I was not going to use pronouns for this child at all. Um, because this child, you know, it, it, among the things that at one point the father was told that he had to do by court order, and that it would count as domestic violence if he didn't do it, was to refer to his daughter as a son, uh, to use the new name, to use the, pro the male pronouns rather than female pronouns. We are talking about a child who was 13 at the time from memory. Um, so, you know, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to comply with that court order, but I'm also not in the business of shock jocking. You know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to have the confrontation with an individual. I, I, I mean, you know, I made some, I, I knew that I'd get criticism for whatever I did. Like, um, I managed to write the whole section about Jessica and Eve without referring to any pronouns. It's very helpful not having to use Mr. or Mose or any of those things and just use bare surnames. And, you know, I know that there's people who will have wanted me to go through and talk about this person who is a male person who represents as a woman and who on that basis tries to get um, beauticians to offer genital waxing. And of course, we're talking about waxing a penis and testicles not waxing a vulva. Um, again, you know, I'm the, I, I'm the one who's been forced into the position of saying these words, you know, I'm not the one who's trying to come into women's homes, strip completely naked and force them to handle genitals they don't want to handle, you know, that's the obscene thing. But I'm the one who's somehow obscene for saying it. Uh, so I, I wrote that section without pronouns entirely. Um, I don't, of course I wasn't going to get a a court, you know, ruling against me. I'm not in Canada, but I didn't want to cause problems for the book in Canada either. Like if it gets published there, 
and it just didn't it didn't seem worth it didn't seem worth the confrontation on this you know you can write the facts carefully and everyone knows what you're talking about without having the confrontation so that was one case the max case the jessica yaniv case was another one and then there's a case in ireland uh, which again there are court orders in ireland that i don't think could touch me here by any means and certainly couldn't touch somebody in the us but i mean again I'm not in the business of trying to focus on individuals. I'm using these individuals as examples of how wrongheaded the law is and the ideology is. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Yes, well, as I knew, <laughs> reading many accounts of these stories in the media, including the you know woman rapes another woman story in the media of recent months, yeah. the pronouns have become part of the epicenter of this debate, and it goes back to the way that in your introduction you frame this discussion around transgender identity as being about having to frame people the way they see themselves through their through the language they command. And the parallels to the gay rights movement are constantly used when discussing the psychiatric elements of transgender within the DSM-5, for instance. But there's a non-parallel when it comes to gay rights movements, because when I was fighting with ACT UP in New York in the 1980s and 90s, Never once did we fight to be seen as heterosexuals. We were exactly. not demanding that people see us as something we were not. We were just saying, we're gay, get over it, to use a Stonewall <laughs> a mm -hmm. oyster card holder quote. So why is it that pronouns is still so integral in the debate? And I mean, including on the feminist side of this or the gender critical side of this, because I spoke with Nick Williams recently, who told me about how she had to get into a major sporting debate on this in Switzerland. And she had to elbow her way into the meeting, but she also had to sort of pave that road for herself by using some of the terms they wanted, while at the same time they were horrified she used the term male. And she yes. had to explain to them if we're speaking about science, male is a term. I need to be able to use it to communicate. Now, Stepping back from that, where I understand activism has its needs to bend and twist on that road, but why is it that now we've got, you know, I talked to the NUJ recently about why they've ushered forth directives to us, telling us we must use preferred pronouns. As you know from my name, I regularly get called Mr. I'm regularly called he on Twitter, despite my photo. So, and I don't take offense, at all. <laughs> Why is it that pronouns are so at the center of this from the gender critical side? And is it not the case that by using preferred pronouns, and I know in your book you discuss this, but at the same time you might be criticized because you at times use the terms trans I woman, yeah. trans man, etc. Are these own goals? It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, you know, no, no one speaks in a vacuum. Everyone speaks into the discourse. And, you know, I, I don't, I mean, I wish, I wish that we could just call males and men the same thing and females and women the same thing and just use sex-based pronouns. 
I, I also can't control how other people hear me and see me. So any more than a trans person can impose their, their internal reality on the rest of the world, I can't do that either. I have to think about how people hear me. And I may think that they're hearing me in a disingenuous way or that they will be better off hearing me differently, but I can't control it. So I had to think extremely, extremely hard about how people would hear me. And I think, and I, I really think this profoundly, that if I had written this book, just calling every male person he, just using the names that they used before transition, if they had transitioned to, a, to regard themselves as women or men, you know, um, and, and just had none of it, I just don't think A, I'd have got the book published, and B, I don't think I'd have got it read by people I want to get it read by. And, you know, that's, that is in one sense ridiculous. It shows how far we've got. It's just a fact. So I was writing a book, um, I, I've talked about this a lot in recent weeks. Um, I think it's incredibly important that we're strategic. And I was writing a book to get read and to get read by people who didn't already agree with me or who knew nothing about it. Like when I conceived of this book first and when I wrote the proposal, I mean, you know, it's, it's, most people don't know how book writing goes and I certainly didn't before this one, but you write a proposal that's quite a detailed description of what will go in the book and you also write a sample chapter is the usual way. Like unless you've already got an editor who knows your work. Um, so in the proposal, and then you write like, you know, what you, who you think would read this book, why you think it needs to be written, you know, how it would be marketed, why you're the right person to write it, that sort of thing. In that proposal, I was trying to get across that the aim of this book was the person who is where now, where you were in 2012, where I was in 2017, who stumbled across this subject and thinks to themselves, well, this is strange, what's going on? Like they just see Laurel Hubbard, who's this male person who is now going to be competing as a woman in the Olympics in weightlifting. And they say, that's really odd, like men are much stronger than women. Or they hear about something from a child at school, you know, that you're taught that, you know, if you feel like a girl, you are actually a girl or something like that. That person who is not somebody who has any idea of feminist history, you know, not someone who knows much about the science, not someone who's engrossed in any sort of activism. That person thinks, what the hell is going on? This is so weird. And I want them to pick that book up. So that person will put the book down if I seem to be mean. And again, this is not fair. I'm not talking about fair. Life isn't fair. I'm talking about speaking into a discourse that I did not create and I cannot change on my own. And I'm not willing to pretend that the world is as I think it should be, because that's exactly the problem that I'm writing about in the book, people who are insisting on remaking the world as they would like it to be. So it is just a fact that if you go around the place calling trans women he, you are causing problems for yourself. You are also causing problems for yourself when you call them she. So because people will mishear you, they'll think you're talking about a female person, they will, you know, they will be misled, they will be lulled into a false sense of security when you're talking about putting them in women's jails or women's sports or something like that. So you have an incredibly diff difficult task. That's the point of it, by the way, to make it almost impossible to speak, to make it really, really, really hard to speak clearly and say what you're trying to say. Uh, so I just had to, I had to think all the time, who's reading me and what effect am I trying to get? Am I sure that the way I'm writing is clear enough that the person understands what I am talking about, that this person is male, that this person doesn't look like a woman, doesn't feel like a woman to other people. However, I, if I call this person he, I, I'm not going to get read. I want to get read. I read the entirety of your book and I went back and I saw you have made references to oh, some excellent research on this subject and the people you acknowledge are often the feminists who are doing the more politicized, let's not be mean 
and let's get the message out strategy. And, and this isn't a criticism, by the way, I'm just mm -hmm. wondering if the fact that you didn't mention people like Janice Raymond, who's been monstered amongst the trans advocates because her work many years ago, that took issue with the transgender movement and then Sandy Stone's response to that. And in many ways, Sandy Stone's response to that and the transsexual empire strikes back and so forth, gave rise to transgender studies in the US. I actually know Sandy Stone. So I mm -hmm. had an insight into this writing that was quite interesting for me, especially within scholarship. But then why perhaps did you reference a lot of the women who are doing the more strategy type alignment and not some of the ones who they might consider to be impolite Foundational. or mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a really interesting question, Julia. Yeah. Some of the work of Sheila Jeffries and Julia Long have offered a lot into this. I can tell you, I was piqued as I mentioned, and then one of the first people I spoke to was Julia Long. So, so there's a, there's a, I, I do, I mean, there's a sort of a general answer and a specific answer. And the specific answer is I'm just one person and I am not steeped in, and I've never claimed to be steeped in feminist writing and feminist thinking. I, I regard myself as a feminist and I've regarded myself as a feminist since I was a teenager, but I, and I did read some feminism books then a lot of feminist books then but then I went off and did stuff I did a maths PhD I became a journalist I had kids I was very busy you know I wasn't keeping up with feminist thinking as such I just always regarded myself as someone who wanted women to have every opportunity and you know so on and so forth so, so, so in some ways people are asking me to to know a whole body of work that it's not reasonable to expect me to know I mean I'm not someone who spent the last 30 years studying feminism and the second thing is and I mean, you, you must have had this too. It's an incredibly irritating aspect of being a writer, a journalist, or a, an author. People come to you and they say, why did you write the book that you wanted to write rather than the book that I wanted you to write? Why did you write the article about the subject that you wanted to write about rather than the article that I thought you should write about? My book, my structure, you go write your own book, I want to say to them. There certainly is a book about, out there that had a play in which Sheila Jeffries and Julia Long and these other people who I respect hugely play a bigger part. I wrote the story I wanted to tell. And that's the story that I saw and I witnessed. And remember that this, I only stumbled on this subject in 2017. So I was writing a story, you know, I wasn't picking and choosing people I thought were kind and people I thought weren't kind. I literally wrote the story as I saw it. And even there I left people out and left subjects out because you can't put everything in. So that's another thing that happened. I mean, there are people I interviewed that I didn't um, quote. That always happens. I mean, you know, if, if you're if you're quote if you're interviewing about the same number of people as you quote, you're not interviewing enough. You probably, as a rule of thumb, are interviewing at least twice and maybe three or four times more people than you end up quoting. And that would be a general rule of my journalism as well. You know, you because the thing is, you you're not writing. I'm not writing a commissioned book. That's a his. I'm not writing a history of this movement. I'm not writing a commissioned book in which I'm sort of paid to, you know, respectfully name check everybody in this movement, I'm writing a story that I want to be read by people who are outside the movement. And sometimes the choices, you know, absolutely don't reflect the importance that I think the different people have in it. What, the, what you do when you're telling a story is you have to pick a few strands and you follow those strands. And sometimes somebody that you interviewed said, you know, was just in the right place at the right time to illustrate a point, or they said it in a way 
that was most helpful for you? I mean, for example, um, I thought there was a bit where I talk about the, this incident where Posey Parker, uh, uh, who's um, uh, a British campaigner, um, paid to put up a poster in the town where the Labour Party was having their annual conference that just said woman, adult, human, female. And it got taken down after this Dr. Adrian Harrop, who's a big trans rights activist, a gay man. Uh, he, um, he complained about it and the pair of them went head to head on Sky News. And Adrian said that the definition of woman was, was, was transphobic. Like he said that just defining woman, woman, adult, human, female, was a, it was a symbol that made trans people unsafe, I think was his exact wording. Now, me mentioning that does not mean that I think, I mean, and I have no problem with Posey Parker, I just mean I, it's not meant to be some sort of ranking that I think that she's more important than Julia Long or more important than Sheila Jeffries or more important than Janice Raymond. It's the thing that she just gave the perfect, perfect example. That, that was just this moment that crystallized in the book how you're not even allowed to say what women are, right? So I'm, I'm telling a story, I'm writing a book, I'm not you know, giving a top thousand ranking or a top hundred ranking, even a top 10 ranking of who made this movement happen. And then the second broader point that I would make is one of the reasons that people feel strongly about this or are making these points about me is that there aren't that many books out about this. So this is the only one that tries to do specifically this like, you know, really tight focus on, you know, what happens when you say that men can be women. So Kathleen Stock has written a book about, you know, some aspects of the philosophy of it. Um, uh, Abigail Shire has focused on teenage girls uh, thinking that they're boys and, you know, what the harm of that is. And Deborah So has written a book that's about, you know, what is gender if you, if you are a sexologist? Like, is there a way that you can think of gender as something that's actually a meaningful biological and scientific term? They're the only four books that I can think of right now. And, and God, have I missed something? I probably have. Yes, of course. Then there's some very, very good books written um, and edited by people like Heather Brunskill Evans and Michelle Moore that are, you know, very useful as well. And so, so there just aren't enough books, that's all. Like people wouldn't be saying, why didn't you put this in? Why didn't you put that in? If they were somewhere else, like other people need to write different stories. So I just wrote the story that I saw and I didn't see those other bits of the story, you know, maybe because I'm come lately and maybe because I'm based in the UK. You know, it's frustrating. It really is frustrating to have people act like this is the only book that's ever going to come out on this subject. And that therefore anything that's not in it has been, you know, sidelined or misrepresented or that I've got it wrong or something. My God, you know, I had to cut 20,000 words out of this book to get it down to length for, um, you know, my editor correctly saying people won't pick it up if it's more than that. Yeah, anyway, that sounded like I'm ranting. And, you know, but it is frustrating. It's frustrating to be attacked from both sides. You know, it's like that one side are saying that I'm a massive bigot for writing about this and the other side and the other side are saying, you know, why, why did you leave these people out? That's ruined the book for me. Well, I'm not perfect. I probably made some choices that were wrong, but also my bloody book. I wrote what I wanted to write. Other people are going to step forward and write different books, possibly better books. They'll write about different bits of it. They'll write about it from different angles. You know, we, we, we need dozens of books on this subject. We need, a, and, we, and we're starting to see, I must say, less on the book front, but more on the, um, the grassroots organizing front here in the UK, especially. We're starting to see a real, uprising of interest in this subject. I, mean, I want more people to step forward and write books. I think we need a book entirely about what happened in education, you know? 
Absolutely. We, and there's, oh, sorry, I forgot to say there's a book about sports. There's Linda Blade and um, Barbara Kay in Canada have written a book that's entirely focused on the sports, which I haven't had a chance to read. I have no time these days. Yes, the ideological capture of institutions. There's a book there. Yes, that's another one. Exactly. I mean, there's a whole book to be written about what happened with the ACLU on its own. There's another whole book to be written about what happened with Stonewall. There's just so many books and these books will come out and they will all have different purposes and they'll be written by different people who know different bits. I mean, I feel like there's an elephant there, you know, the, the, the blind man feeling the elephant sort of metaphor. You know, I felt one bit of the elephant and it's a bit mean to say to me, oh, you focused on this bit of the elephant. Why didn't you focus on that bit of the elephant? Because I didn't. I, I, either I didn't see it or I didn't want to, frankly. I wrote the story that I wanted to write. Well, that's what a lot of people miss up because writing is not just a regurgitation of every thought in the head. It's more a process oh of editing out <laughs> rather than what we're putting in. And I was also writing for a particular audience. And it wasn't, it really wasn't about who's kind and who's not kind. I mean, sorry, that was actually the question you asked in the first place. That was never one of my criteria. It was that I, there, there was a strand. It was extremely difficult to structure this book because a lot of things are interlinked and a lot of things have to be told before other things. And so my editor helped hugely on that. I had to, you know, really put a lot of effort into the planning and then it had to be reworked quite considerably between the first draft and the second in terms of structure. And at no point did I think to myself, this person is too mean to be put in. <laughs> really not. <laughs> yes, but I think as time wears uh, on, I think we will be seeing more and more people being able to, ourselves included, to just say, Yes, I hope so. I hope so. Because this is a discursive movement. It's extraordinary the extent to which this, and actually some related identitarian movements, especially in the States, to what extent they are about language, about policing language, about changing language. You know, there's this sort of postmodernist idea that the language creates the reality. And so if you can stop people from saying things, you're actually stopping harm. Like, and of course, you know, some, some things that people say are very harmful. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, words are literally nothing. But it's an extraordinary, almost exclusive focus on language as the means of creating reality. And so, you know, it's not just in this, but in this, it is the most, the most extreme element of it. The idea that you just can't see a man and say this is a man is an extraordinary imposition on people. That you make somebody into a woman by being by forcing everyone around them to say that they're a woman. Um, or a major organization like the ACLU, which has as its legal counsel someone who fits into that gender politics. I mean, there's a whole study there about how the ideological capture happens on the personal, literally becoming the political. Yes, I, I, you know, there's a different book to be written and it's one that I'm totally unqualified to write, but I mean, there's, there's almost a sort of a, a fictional or meditat meditative, or when I say fictional, I don't mean a, a novel, although that'd be interesting too. I mean, you know, how, how does it come to be that somebody comes into this movement and comes out again. You know, there's so many different ways to write about this and so many different things to do and so many people writing stuff, you know? I just think people wouldn't be focusing so much on what I put in and what I didn't put in if there were more books about this, and there will be soon. I mean, there are just, there, there are just four or five just very recently, so there will be. And what's the future do you see in this movement where in the US the political train is quite different? We have the aftermath of Trump derangement syndrome, which basically translates like this. Trump tries to dismantle trans rights, so we're going to protect them all the more. We're in the UK, and it's quite paradoxical, Helen. I mean, you can hear my accent, I am American. But living in the UK and working on this early on, I thought, 
we're going to have a harder time than in the US because here in the UK, we haven't the First Amendment. Quite paradoxically, it's worked in the inverse, where the country with the First Amendment is having a harder time. And the UK is pushing back quite successfully now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I often think America is very paradoxical in these ways. You know, it's quite a puritanical country, but it produces most of the world's porn, for example. Uh, you know, it's got this very strong constitutional protection for free speech, but it's in America that, you know, you can't even get interviewed for a job if you won't, like in the university, um, you know, if you won't mouth certain platitudes and so on and so forth. And I sometimes think those two things are linked. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how, I, this isn't a fully formed thought, but it just seems that, you know, when you have these very grand, bold statements about things, sometimes you also have, you know, quite shocking exceptions to them. And so Britain's got a more flexible and less codified um, constitution. You know, it's, it's, it's not a, a single written document in the same way that the American one is. And it's split among different documents. And it's more like a sort of a, it's more, it's more of a living document as a result, therefore. Um, and I think that, you know, that's bad in some ways. Like, I think there isn't this just this categorical protection from government interference in your free speech. And you see that when women are dragged before courts to defend the fact that they just said things, you know, that are completely ordinary. And um, but then on the other hand, you haven't got this carve out where people have found a way around that law and they're not going to even interview you for a job at a university unless you write certain things in the application, you know. So here, I think it's just kind of more flexible is, is, is the way I would say it um, in, in thinking. And of course, it's much less polarized, which is connected, like politically polarized. So that just makes it easier to organize, makes it easier for people to listen to a wider range of voices. It makes it less likely that you'll just be dismissed. You know, I mean, people think I'm some sort of Trumpist, which is an extraordinary thing. You know, I'm not based in America and I'm not aligned with any American political party and never was. You know, I think Trump was an absolutely atrocious president and a very bad person, um, you know, but I, I, if, I, if I lived in America in normal times, I'm not sure who I'd vote for and have never given it any thought, you know, and so on. But people think that because I write about this, that I am in some sense, you know, funded by the Heritage Foundation, um, a Christian conservative, a supporter of Trump. You know, I, I, these, seriously, like I'm A, not that person, but I'm B, not in that culture. Like, why do you feel you have to imagine that the whole world has lined itself up according to America's battle between Democrats and Republicans? I'm just not in that fight. Why would I be in that fight? It's bizarre. This manifestation also does a perfect x-ray of what's amiss outside of gender ideology, but involving it as well. It's this myth that the left and right exist any longer as they once did. And I think the reason why we're seeing people, or let's just start with publications to the right of center, running stories that elucidate some of the craziness of this lobby are because the left and right no longer have the same meaning that they once did. And when you have right-wing people, people who might even be opposed to abortion, but being able to properly locate what is human biological sex, align with, I don't mean strategically or organizationally, but ideologically with, let's say, gender critical feminists, we know that there's something amiss because the last year and a half of lockdown has similarly brought out this kind of disconnect between the right and left within the media and on the streets. I have to wonder if the gender ideology debate will not be in maybe a hundred years time, but be that 
cornerstone that's marked as the beginning of people being able to discuss things through issue by issue instead of I vote Democrat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you look at the American publication, it's a horrible publication. It's a blog, I guess, of sorts. The Daily Kos. It is one of the most reprehensible ideological things I've ever witnessed in my life. It's part of the reason why the Democrats lose. They don't even realize it. But it's this yeah. machinery that puts forth Russiagate and Hillary Clinton as, as God. And it's like, whoa, let's talk about what Hillary Clinton did in Honduras. Or let's talk about the fact that some of why the gender ideology movement has had such a thrust, especially amongst MRAs, is because there is this emboldened now sense of misogyny that can be put forth because people, including feminists, I'm being a little critical here of feminists, refuse to acknowledge that maybe violence isn't something that uniquely emanates from people with penises. The political polarization thing, it's particularly extreme in America, but people do have a tendency to take their beliefs in packages. Um, you know, because we can't all be thinking about things all the time. And so you, you know, you broadly identify yourself as being, you know, a Labour voter or something. And then, you know, you sort of broadly reckon that they are going to pre, uh, you know, pre-vet your ideas for you. And, and people don't look at political manifestos and, and think like there's 17 things in each of these, you know, which one do I align with most? And let me rank the importance of those 17 things. So, you know, that's, that's natural, that's standard to think that, you know, this is my party, this is what they think, but that's probably my base case and I'd have to actually be given a reason to step away from it. I think what's different in America is just how dif distant the two groups have got from each other and how entrenched and how much they hate each other and how little they listen to each other and how hard it is to work across the boundaries and also the oddness of the collection of beliefs. Like it's a very odd belief to attach that men can be women to everything else that Democrats believe in. Um, so so that, I think that's, that's really driven a lot of the poisoning in America. But I, would, I also discovered extremely recently, I just read it in fact yesterday in a, an interesting Substack email by a chap called Noah Carl. Um, there's, there's a thing called a um, Baptist bootlegger coalition. And this isn't his idea, but it's a really, really interesting article that he's written about it. So the Baptist bootlegger coalition was the coalition against, uh, sorry, for prohibition. So Baptists wanted prohibition because they believed that nobody should drink and they thought that prohibition would stop people from drinking and bootleggers wanted prohibition because they knew they would get rich. And he said, so there's this phenomenon whereby people often support the same um, policy, not just for wildly different reasons, but one of them is supporting it for ideological reasons and the other one is supporting it for financial or you know, even corrupt sort of reasons. And he gives a number of examples of that along the way you know, through history, um, but then he, he, he comes to how this maybe helps to explain why what we sometimes for shorthand call wokeness has taken over on the left. So you can point to many aspects of it, you know, I think you're quite right that misogyny is much more deep rooted than I ever realised, and this is a wonderful opportunity for people to attach themselves to a movement that allows you to speak about women in a way that we haven't really been allowed to speak about women for quite a long time. You know, and, and some blindnesses among feminism in particular about the realness of sex differences, you know, quite a lot of things there. But he specifically looks at the fact that it might be a Baptist bootlegger coalition, specifically between a very small number of people who, you know, are very, really have really become indoctrinated in universities and really are all in on this movement, but are now in quite, um, quite, um, 
influential positions, for example, in um, HR departments and in, uh, in Silicon Valley, like running social media. And then there's a totally separate group, and they're the equivalent of the bootleggers, the people who are doing it for um, cynical reasons, really, like just for money and whatever. And that's the big corporations for whom wokeness, if we can call it that again, um, is a, a lovely way to take the heat off other left-wing or other liberal or other progressive ideas like you should pay more taxes or perhaps your female employees should be given better maternity rights or any of those things you know you can move the focus to this linguistic performative set of ideas so they've gone all in i mean you know we call it rainbow washing um you know change the signs on your toilets so that every you know everyone can go into every toilet or and make everybody wear rainbow lanyards or get everyone to put their um, pronouns in their Twitter bio. You know, I mean, if I were looking at the bottom line and thinking about, you know, moves to try to tax multinationals more fairly or things like that, I'd be very keen on moving everybody's focus to that sort of set of policies and continuing with business as usual in other ways. Yeah, so I thought it was a really interesting um, description of a, of a very obvious dynamic without that I hadn't actually managed to nail so clearly before. Well, it's a capitalist dream, this ideology. Oh, yeah, it really is. You derail all discussion, like you said, of taxes, all discussion of real inequality. But let's talk about fake inequality. These are my pronouns with here's your badge to put your pronouns on. What a great way to avoid responsibility towards actual human rights. And at the same time, why has the corporation become the place of gender, wokeness, and ideology, and purity? Do we really want corporations policing this kind of neo-religion? I mean, I guess we're sort of seeing outworkings. Like, you know, we just, we've had corporations for, I'm not exactly sure when the first limited liability company was created, but it's, you know, in historical terms, really quite recently. We've had big multinationals for not very long. We've had multinationals that aren't in the business of shipping actual physical stuff for a blink of an eye in human history. And so some of what we're seeing is just, it's just, it's just the march of history dealing with a new phenomenon, namely a corporation that can be worth more than you know, anything else in the world, but actually all it sells is ideas uh, or you know, very small um, pieces of technology that allow you to do very large things. And it's natural, I think, that anyone who wants anything to happen in the world, whether that's, you know, globalization or whether it's regionalization or, you know, women's equality or anything at all, looks at these new, huge, incredibly influential industries and companies and thinks, you know, they're a natural tool for me to try to influence. They just didn't exist. I mean, there was nothing like Amazon 50 years ago. There certainly was nothing like Twitter. So, yeah, so I, I, I think it's not surprising. It's just obvious that you would turn to those, those new monsters, those new global behemoths when you're trying to think about how you make the things you want to happen, happen. As an editor, you deal with writers all the time. Now, as you are quite aware, the Observer Guardian conflict came to light. We already knew about it back when they pulled Julie Birchall's 2013 piece anyways. But what do you have to say to writers who are in the business of signing letters to have their colleagues let go or fired for expressing ideas they don't believe in? It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a profound betrayal of all sorts of 
I mean, really liberal enlightenment ideas, but certainly ideas of what journalism is and should be. And it really comes back to this idea that if you control the discourse, you control reality. So I think that there's a generation that has come through university and that has gone into workplaces. And there are a generation that five or 10 years ago, the people noticing them thought, oh, you know, this is just campus nonsense, you know, the deplatforming people and so on. They'll grow up once they leave university. Sadly, they were in large enough numbers and they got taken into, you know, big corporations or they became teachers or any of those things. Um, and they, nobody pushed back against their ideas and, you know, knocked this nonsense out of them, frankly. And instead, people, it was, I, th I think, partly because we were all shifting online and companies were trying to think fast about their online strategies. And they often thought to themselves, oh, the young people will be able to help us. Young people get the Internet. You know, so they put the kids in charge of their Twitter feeds and so on. But also these ideas of reverse mentoring and, you know, you, you arrive at a moment when you're quite rightly as a company attempting to be less prejudiced, to be more open to a wider variety of, of skills and you know, diverse or more diverse workforce and so on. Anyway, um, all those things happened together. So these kids came into workplaces and instead of rapidly getting over silly ideas that they had from university, sadly, they infected the institutions they went into with those ideas instead. And one of those institutions is journalism, broadly speaking. So lots of news um, uh, rooms that had had, you know, just tough sort of people who had gone and covered wars or, you know, had to write about people they didn't agree with. I mean, as a journalist, you don't expect to be writing about people you agree with all the time. It's absolutely absurd to think that you wouldn't, uh, you know, just listen to what all sorts of people say and write it down as clearly as you can. Instead, a large number of people came into newsrooms who seemed to think that, you know, giving space to somebody to put their ideas as clearly as possible was platforming them. And that, it, you know, what you had to do is suppress those voices and instead give voices to other people that it was okay to lie or to redefine words in ways that you knew would confuse your reader. Uh, because that was, you know, in the, in the service of social justice. I mean, when I started to write about this, I remember talking to other journalists and saying, you know, we're just going to have to put in brackets after trans woman, you know, a person born male. I mean, of course, a person born male is still a male person, but you're trying to emphasize that they're male, you know. It's not even intended to say that you can change sex. People sometimes think that's why I would write it. But yeah, and then they would say, no, but that's transphobic or you shouldn't need to say that. Or if somebody said to me, oh, it's 2017, for goodness sake. You're like, oh, what bubble do you live in that you think that most people understand what you mean when you say trans woman? Like, seriously, most people don't. And as a journalist, you should be thinking about your audience. You should be thinking about specifically giving a wide range of thoughts and giving a clear idea of what's going on in the world around you. But these young journalists don't see that as the job of journalism at all. They think they're in the job of creating a new reality. And that means not platforming one side, uh, allowing the other side to tell like really dubious things, changing the meaning of words and by stealth and so on. And then if there's someone else in your newsroom who refuses to go along with this, that person is by definition, your definition, not everybody else's definition, is a bigot. And if somebody's a bigot, well, then they're practically a Nazi. And if they're a Nazi, you can do what you like. You know, they're, they're not even human. So I guess that that's the chain of events. And I really couldn't think worse of editors who don't stand up to this sort of bullshit, frankly. Like, I mean, the only answer to a journalist who says, I'm not staying here because Suzanne Moore is on staff is, well, there's the door, don't let it hit you on the way out. And if you, if you answer like that, you would probably quite quickly regain control of your organisation. And if you don't answer like that, your organisation is lost. So a lot of journalism is, I'm sorry to say, lost.